So we're singing about Jesus and his resurrection. My question would be, what difference does it make that Jesus died on a cross and rose from the grave? Like really, in, in, in your daily life, should it matter that a Jewish rabbi was crucified on a cross and his disciples said that a couple of days later he rose from the grave? Like what difference does that actually make in your life? Now, I grew up in a church, uh, and I've heard this many times. Somebody might argue, well, I get to go to heaven someday. And my question for myself and for everybody else is, so what for right now? I mean, let's be honest. What does that really matter to my life right now? How does that actually benefit my life when I'm, I'm in my job that's stressing me out, when I'm in that relationship that's broken, when I'm dealing with a disease that can't be cured, when, when I'm dealing with you know, broken things around in my life? Well, what I would argue is that Jesus didn't just die on a cross only so we could go to heaven. It's an incredibly important and, and, and real truth, but it wasn't just for that. According to the scriptures, there's actually much more to it than that. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, when he's talking about the resurrection, that that Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. If you're listening in that passage that that Jess read earlier, uh, we see a couple times that Jesus has to explain the scriptures to people. He has to open their eyes to what has been happening all along and what his death and resurrection have to do with it. So what does it mean that Jesus died in accordance with Scripture. Why did Jesus need to illuminate these truths to his disciples? Well, I think to understand that, we need to go back to the beginning and see what Scripture has been saying all along. So this this talk today is going to be in two parts. All right, we're going to have a couple minutes up front here with a song in the middle, and then the second half after that. So if you hear me preach and I get done and you're like, okay, great, that was short, there's ten more minutes, all right? So there's a second part to the story. But we need to go back to the beginning. So I want to ask a question. Feel free to answer out loud if you want to. How does the book of Genesis start? In the beginning, right? In the beginning. And do you remember what was there in Genesis? What was there? There was God, but there was nothing else, right? And it was was dark. You remember this? There was darkness all around. And the narrative goes on to say that God speaks the word light into being. He speaks it light into the darkness and begins this creation of sun and moon and, and, and the plants and the, growth, uh, the, the growing vegetables and fruit trees and things like this. And, and it's this beautiful garden that God creates called the Garden of Eden. And into that garden, sort of the culmination of the creation project on the last day of the, the creation week, as it's called, God creates man and woman made in his image, Adam and Eve, and he places them into this good creation, into this garden. And this man is, is made in God's image, meaning he, 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 he and she look and, and act like God in some way in this creation. That, that they have his image, and they are to reign over the earth, to, to subdue it, to, to reign over it, and to reflect God's image back into the world. And the whole earth is his, and the whole earth is theirs to to subdue and to, to reflect God's glory into. They have dominion over creation. They are to tend to the earth as gardeners. They're to care for it, to raise things from it. They're to raise a family, to fill it with a loving family, and they're to reflect God's image out into 
the world and reflect God's love for them and God's love for humanity. God's presence is there in the garden. Adam and Eve are communing with him. Heaven and earth meet in that place. And so, really, many scholars believe that the the language that Moses is using there when he's writing this creation account for us to remember is is sort of like a temple that that God is creating. And he creates this good place, and the last thing that he installs into the temple is the priest, the one who's going to reflect his image out into the world. God's presence is there. There's a priest there. It's this house of God. Heaven and earth are meeting there. And Adam and Eve have this vocation, this job, that they are to be priests, who who reflect, not, not priests in the traditional sense that you might be thinking, But priests, as in people who go and reflect God's glory out into the world. They know that they're loved, and they go and represent God's love to all of creation. And in that creation, that garden, and that temple, is the shalom of God, the peace of God, the wholeness of God. Shalom means sort of this this holistic wholeness, this sense of, of good things relationally, emotionally, physically, spiritually. And it's a good place that God creates and places them into. And after all these things that God creates, what happens on the last day of the week? Rest. There's this day of rest, this Sabbath that happens. And God rests from his creating, from the striving, from the working. But if you know the story of our human ancestors, you know that it's not long before the priestly vocation of Adam and Eve is thwarted by the enemy of God. That, that the enemy comes and, and distracts Adam and Eve, and rather than worshiping God and give their worship to, to, to God, they start giving it to created things, really actually to themselves. And they place themselves on the throne, and they say, we're going to worship ourselves. We're going to be God, and instead of worshiping God, they worship themselves. They wanted to be God. And like it always happens, maybe you found this in your life, when we worship things other than God, our lives start to spin out of control. When we, when we worship our jobs, it becomes the master. When we worship even our good things, like our families, they become the master over us. And, and it doesn't lead to a whole life that God promises us. And so in this environment, we see that it starts to, the sin starts to spread out into the relational aspect of the world, the emotional aspect of the world. And as a result of this idolatry that happens, of them putting something else on the throne, God banishes Adam and Eve from the garden. Maybe you remember this from the story. And there are cosmic events that happen. There's this seismic shift that happens in the universe as sin extends out into the universe. The earth is no longer pleasant to work with, but it becomes difficult. There's this relational strife, this emotional baggage that happens. There's pain, there's disease, there's heartache, there's natural disasters. Like, we've experienced this in our walks, right? In our humanity. And at the entrance to the garden, preventing a way back into life, God places these angels who, are, who have this flaming sword that are going to keep people out of the garden of life, because of their sin, because of their idolatry. And these angels really represent kind of an impending death. But God still desired a relationship with humanity. He still desired a good earth that would be filled with his glory, where he would be made known, where people would live as priests, reflecting him out into the world. So years down the line, he was relentlessly pursuing humanity, and he gets this guy named Abraham, and he says, okay, I'm going to restart creation with you. We're going to start over with you, and you're going to make a new family. And I'm going to be your God, and you will be my people, and you will be a light to the world, and you're going to be like a priest, a nation of priests who reflect my glory out into the world, just like Adam and Eve were called to be. 
And like the Garden of Eden, God says to Abraham, I'm going to give you a good land. I'm going to give you a good land to live in, this promised land where you can go and you can live and, and you can you know, subdue it and raise up food out of it for yourselves. And we're going to make a place where God comes and dwells called the temple, where his presence will be there with the people. And he will be their God and they will be his people and they can commune with God once more. So Abraham goes along to become a big family. The family becomes the family of Israel, which becomes the nation of Israel. And God makes a covenant with them at Mount Sinai and says that they will be his people. And he will be their God. And he will be with them wherever they go. His presence will, will go with them. And eventually they're going to create a temple where he will dwell. But what happens with Israel? They too start worshiping idols, whether it's themselves or these things they create of metal and wood. And they don't put God on the throne. And God's presence leaves the temple. The shalom, the wholeness of God is lost. The peace of God is lost from Israel as well. Israel can't do it. King David can't do it. The prophets are calling them back to it, but they can never really fully experience the presence of God because of their idolatry in their hearts. They can't stay faithful to God either. So they too end up banished from the promised land. Their temple was also no longer full of the presence of God. But all along, years earlier, Moses had promised something in the book of Deuteronomy. When he was getting ready to die, Moses promised the people something good. That one would come who would fulfill the covenant that they couldn't fulfill. That one would come who who would put this covenant actually into their hearts. Would actually fulfill it on their behalf. Would actually stay faithful when they couldn't. Prophets came and told them that one day God would send someone into their midst to redeem them and to help them stay faithful. And that God's presence would return and once again fill the entirety of the earth. But this is what's interesting is when God's making these promises, he makes it clear that it's not just going to be for them. It's not just going to be for the Jewish people. It's actually going to be for the Gentile world as well, meaning the whole world will get to experience God's shalom and God's peace and God's presence. And when he makes the promise to Abraham and he makes the promise to Israel, he says, actually, you're not just going to inherit the promised land. You're actually going to inherit the full earth. The entire earth will be given to the people of God. My presence will go and fill the whole earth, God says. So they waited And they waited, and they waited for years, hundreds of years, for one to come who would be the perfect keeper of the covenant. Loving God and loving humanity. Living out the requirements of the commandments in perfection, without error. Only putting God on the throne and not serving any other idols. So they wait, and they wait for this one to come who will fulfill what Scripture has been promising all along. One that would fulfill the vocation of being a faithful priest, representing God to the world and man to God. One that would bring a return to the garden, a return to peace, a return to wholeness and shalom, a return to God's presence filling the wholeness of the earth and people communing with him once again like they had in the garden. But they knew they couldn't do it. They had to face this fact again and again that they couldn't do it. Adam had failed King David had failed. The nation of Israel had failed. They needed a king that would come. They needed a servant who would come and fulfill it on their behalf, defeating their enemies and leading them back into the promised land to renew them and to renew the covenant. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up right now. 
uh, we're going to sing a song called All Hail King Jesus. And this song, uh, it is true for us today. And I would say just before the Passover, it was true for the Israelites who were calling and welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem. Who were saying, here's our king. Here's our king. But we know how that story went. They crucified Jesus and he's in a tomb for three days. But today we celebrate a risen king who comes to fulfill the covenant. The second half of the story, which I will pick up in just a few minutes. Would you stand and sing All Hail King Jesus with me? we wait for this servant king to come. The people of Israel ushered Jesus in waiting for this savior to come, but he wasn't quite what they expected. As the people are, are waiting for renewal and a return to the promised land, we read in the book of John and his gospel about Jesus, an account of his life, he starts his gospel by using very familiar words to us and certainly to our Jewish ancestors. Anybody know, remember how the book of John begins? In the beginning. In the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and he, through him all things were made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. John goes on to say, the light shines into the darkness. Do you see it, friends? Do you hear it? John is is painting for us a new creation account. In the beginning, the spoken word speaks light into the darkness. This is a creation account that John's writing, just like in the book of Genesis. Jesus is the second Adam. The first Adam is there in the original creation. Here Jesus is coming as the second Adam, the one to fulfill all the promises in this new creation. John goes on. We see all these things that he lists about who Jesus is. He says that, that, that Jesus has dominion. Like Adam was supposed to have dominion. Jesus has dominion over sin, what Adam couldn't do. Like Israel wandered in the desert for 40 years where they struggled to obey God, they struggled to withstand temptation, we see that Jesus wanders in the desert for 40 days. And he, he doesn't succumb to temptation like Adam and Israel did. Where Adam and Israel failed, Jesus succeeds. One time when they were near the temple, the, the disciples were impressed by this great ornate building where they hoped that God's presence would dwell. And Jesus says, tear this building down. Tear it down and in three days I will raise it up, clearly indicating or prophesying to his own death and resurrection that he would be the temple of God. He lives this life of of total love for humanity and total love for his father in complete submission, fulfilling the covenant. When you read John, you see Jesus having dominion over nature like Adam was supposed to. But even more so, we see him having this miraculous dominion. He's breaking bread and multiplying this and fishes out to feed the 5,000. He calms storms. He walks on water. He has dominion over the physical world. He has dominion over the spiritual world. We see him encounter people who are oppressed by some kind of demonic force. And he casts these demons out to heal people and to bring the shalom of God back to them. 
He never breaks. He never stumbles. He never fails. He never sins. He lives the covenant perfectly in every way. Finally, the people welcome in this this Savior, they think, coming into Jerusalem, but he doesn't look like they think. He doesn't do what they think he should. They welcome him in near the temple, the central place where God's presence was supposed to dwell with Israel, where they were supposed to be with their God, and instead they turn him over to some corrupt religious allegiance. We see that the, the religious leaders of the day take Jesus and they convict him of blasphemy for saying he's the son of God. They turn him over to the political leaders of the day who have him beaten and flogged and spit on and eventually sentenced to death. And in a moment of irony, remember the creation account, in a moment of irony, the political leader of the day, Pilate, brings Jesus out, clothes him in a, in a robe signifying his leadership and his royalty, And he says, behold the man. He's the second Adam being presented as good again. Pilate even says, he's good. He's innocent. Behold the man. It's a new creation of a new Adam here for all to see. He is the new man. And Jesus goes on from there to be crucified on a cross. And for three days, he lay in darkness. If you have a copy of the scriptures and you want to turn here, you can. Uh, It's in John 20. I'm just going to read another resurrection account about our new Adam, the perfect Adam, laid in a tomb for these three days. And right at the beginning, uh, I'm going to pick up right from the beginning of John 20. John says this, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. Don't you love how John writes about himself? The disciple that Jesus loved. Okay. It's John. All right. Uh, She comes to them and she says, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter. John's like, I'm faster. I got there first. And And he reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. Peter, always the the bold one, right? He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. Sort of like this, this, this chrysalis, right, that's been shorn off and it's laying there. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed, but they still didn't quite understand from scriptures that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Again, it's Jesus, but he's... He looks different in some way. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener. She said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbanai, which means my teacher. 
Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father. Listen to this covenant language here. To my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that, she had, uh, that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish people around them that had persecuted Jesus, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he had said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. What day of the week was it that the resurrection occurred? First day of the week. It's the first day of the new week. The first day of the week, the light shines out of the darkness of the tomb into the world. The strips of linen, these, these grave clothes are left behind, like I said, sort of like this, this body that's been shorn off, and now there's this new body that is there for Jesus. It's clear that something new has happened. Anastasis has happened to Jesus. And what was guarding the tomb? There's these angels there, right? But this time, instead of keeping Adam and Eve out of the garden, representing death, here they are representing new life, saying death is no longer here. It no longer holds him, or you in this case as well. That he is alive and has come through death to the other side. To me, one of the greatest pictures that John paints here for us. Who did, Jesus, who did Mary mistake Jesus to be? The gardener. Do you see it, friends? She mistakes him for a gardener. She's seeing the new Adam. who the Adam was supposed to be a gardener of the good garden that God had created. And here she's mistaking Jesus in the middle of a garden as the gardener. He is the second Adam. New creation has begun in Jesus' resurrection. It's a new Adam in a new, new garden. Sin and death have been defeated. Scripture has been fulfilled. The physical kingdom that, that the Israelites had been waiting for all these years of, of a heaven on earth with Adam, with Abraham, with Israel, had now come to be through Jesus' death and resurrection. God's presence is now with the people. All the promises from Moses up through the prophets, through the Psalms, have been fulfilled. What the first Adam destroyed, the second Adam restores in full. Whereas the first David was sinful, the perfect David never sinned. Where the first Israel worshipped idols and put other things on the throne, Jesus never did that. He always left his father on the throne to worship him perfectly fulfilling the covenant that Israel never could. And in so doing, he starts a new creation at his resurrection. The old way of sin and death and idolatry that starts it have been defeated by Jesus. And it's into that world, to his disciples, Jesus says, peace to you. Peace to you. The shalom of God to you. It's now yours. I give you what I have, the peace of God. In Matthew, I love it, he says, listen, I will be with you forever, even until the end of the age. He's Emmanuel from beginning to end. He's God with us. This is what he has brought to earth. The resurrection declares loudly that that God has become king now. It's not just some heaven that we wait for someday, that Jesus has become king now, declared so by his resurrection, and that God's presence is not something we need to wait to get to someday. It's here now among us. 
And whereas Israel was waiting for this promised land to come, where they would build a temple and God would dwell in this one little place, Jesus' resurrection declares that it has been fulfilled and that he is the temple. And that everywhere that he is, his presence is. And by his spirit, he is everywhere, here now, in the room, with us. God is present. The veil was torn and the presence of God was no longer restricted to a place, but can go out and fill the entire earth. No longer just Jerusalem or Israel. There's no longer a place to go, friends. He is everywhere. There's now a person and a relationship to be had, not just empty religion. He is the God of the universe and is available to us through Jesus, who will never die, never fail, never give up on us, never turn us away, who is sitting at the right hand of the God, right hand of God, symbolizing that it's finished. The work is done. I have fulfilled the covenant. Now come and be with God. Sins have been forgiven, and the presence of God is accessible to us. I would say this, the vocation of being priests has been restarted because it was fulfilled by Jesus and now passed on to those of us who believe to represent God out into the world in this new creation by our union with Jesus. We no longer need to fear death because, friends, it's been defeated. We will die, but we see that we have a new life to come. This is where heaven comes into the picture, and we celebrate that we get to be raised from the dead. But I would argue that there is life after life after death. Bury that in your head. There is life after life after death. It's not just heaven that we fly off to someday. God remakes the earth. So we get to live in this physical environment, but it will be good. And the shalom and peace of God and the presence of God will be here. Friends, I would argue that we no longer walk alone through our illnesses, through our relationships, through our struggles, because the presence of God is with us through our union with Jesus. Jesus isn't in heaven saying, Get right, and then you can come and be with me someday. Get right, and then someday when you die, you can come and like float around with harps and stuff in heaven. Like That's not at all what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I'm with you now. I'm with you now because I got it right. I fulfilled the covenant. You don't have to. I fulfilled it on your, your behalf. Just be with me. Come and be with me, and you have the presence of the Father with you. Furthermore, our old self, our old flesh, is rendered powerless now because of the presence of God with us. It's been crucified with Christ, Paul says. And the new man has been raised to life with him. We too are new creations. Paul says that the old has gone. The new has come. All those who are in Jesus are now new creations because of the resurrection. So like this, this butterfly that was once a caterpillar, we are the same, but we're different, right? Like our old man is still there, but we are now this new life in Jesus. Because of the power of the resurrection at work within us, we are transformed and now can overcome temptation because of the power of Christ within us. We can stay true to God through our union with Jesus. We are co-laborers with Jesus to be priests who go out into the world modeling his love to the world around us. The resurrection declares that Jesus is king now. That God's presence is on the earth now. Everywhere that his spirit is, which is everywhere where we call on him as Lord. We are called to enjoy that. To stop striving for it so hard because Jesus fulfilled it. We are called to believe in the power of the resurrection to give us new life now And to enjoy it now 
and to look forward to it in eternity when Jesus remakes the earth and we get to live in the goodness of God. This is the power of Easter. This is the power of the resurrection. Would you pray with me?